source of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Scripture reading for today is found in Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 to 22. The book of Ruth is found between the books of Judges and 1 Samuel. Or in your pew Bible, the reading is found on page 224. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amimadab. Amimadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salom. Salom fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word that comes to us in all kinds of ways. It comes to us in letters, it comes to us in history, it comes to us in poetry, it comes to us in prophecy, it comes to us in gospel comes to us in uh, wild apocalyptic literature like Revelation. Lord, it, uh, it is glorious. These 66 books and all of them pointing to one thing, the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Your story of redeeming mankind and restoring your creation to its fullness. And Lord, we thank you for this uh, wonderful story this story of Naomi's great loss and how in your mercy you restored her through the steadfast love of your people, Boaz and Ruth in particular, and how even Naomi herself had such a love for her daughter-in-law, and how you used all of these things to bring about the restoration of Naomi's life. And in so doing the future restoration of Israel. 
and even the future restoration of the world itself. Oh, Lord, your purposes in our lives are beyond what we can imagine. Enable us to rejoice in your sovereignty and your involvement in every detail of our lives. Oh, Lord, may we see that there are no small moments in our lives. There are no small days. There are no small meetings. There are no small events. That everything has about it a glory because we are in fellowship with God and He is directing all of our paths for the purposes that He has and those purposes will never fail. Oh, we thank You, Lord, that this is our life because and only because we know the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us to grow in Your grace now from Your Word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We all uh, have a longing, an, an ache. Uh, C.S. Lewis spoke of this. Uh, a longing and an aching that this world simply cannot satisfy. It's a deep yearning for God himself. And Lewis probably was the best at expressing this, that there's nothing in this world that satisfies us. We're, we're looking for where the music came from. We hear the echo of it, but we want to get back to the original song itself. And Ecclesiastes talks about God having put eternity in our heart and playing off that idea, the well-known quote by, by Pascal to say that we have this God-shaped vacuum within us, this uh, crevice. I, I would put it like we have this amazing, extensive landscape in each one of us. And there's no created thing that can fill this landscape. There's nothing in the world. We, by God's mercy, made in His image, are much too noble for just the things of this world. We must be satisfied in God Himself. And I was reading recently a book by Plattinga, and he uh, spoke of our wanting to be in God, our wanting to be united with God, to be in him, actually. And it's interesting that Jesus prays this in John 17, 21. I pray that they will be in us. We want, we want nothing less than union with God. Because that's what we're made for. We hunger and thirst for. And interestingly, everything you long for, believe it or not, whether you realize it or not, is ultimately a longing for him. And even the things of this world, as good as they are, they're to be, as one guy put it in terms of prepositions, you don't get life from these things, you get life through these things as you draw upon God in fellowship with those. But what's interesting is that though God himself is what we need and must have and nothing else will do, he didn't make us with nothing but him. Obviously, he made us with each other. And in fact, Adam, in creation by himself, you'd think, well, he wouldn't have the distraction of a woman or anybody else. Or she could say, boy, wouldn't it be great not to have the distraction of a man? But God says, no, it's not good. You think, well, wait a minute. He had God. He had God completely. How can you say a man having God to the full and that's not good? But that's what he said. It's not good because we are made for relationship. And he didn't put us in a vacuum. He put us in a creation. 
And he reveals himself in this creation. And in fact, in the in heaven, or what's called the new heavens and the new earth, which gives it away, he doesn't just dispose of this physical earth and say, well, uh, we did with that, now we don't need that anymore. We're just going to have direct fellowship with God without the distraction of this world. No, this world is restored to perfection. He puts us in a new creation. The creation we learn is waiting to be released when we're released as the sons and daughters of, of the king, then the creation itself will be released into its freedom. So, and, and as well, of course, we're told that there's a city that we will live in, which indicates a culture, which indicates that we will be reigning with him the same kind of language as in Genesis 1, that we're to subdue and rule the earth. We will rule forever in the new heavens and the new earth. So there is endless, glorious, unhindered cultural production for God's people forever and ever. That's how earthy things are. For us, it's how glorious it is that God doesn't, He will fellowship with us in keeping with our relationships to one another, which all will be so intimate, so glorious that marriage will be a thing of the past. Now, Kay and I can't imagine what that's going to look like. And we always say, well, maybe we could at least live next to each other, you know, or something along those lines, because we just can't imagine what that would be. But as Lewis also says, it's, this fellowship is transposed to a key that we simply can't hear yet, you know, the glory that is to come. But that's why in Colossians 1 it says, He will reconcile all things to Himself. Or Acts 3.21 and the proclamation there, uh, Peter says that there will come the day when He will restore all things. Reconciling all things, restoring all things, the creation itself will be restored. And so the, our relationships, creation, and even uh, cultural production, the city of God will continue and there will be shalom, peace, reconstruction, renovation, renewal, perfection of this whole world. And so... What we have here in Ruth is at least a little picture of destitution and emptiness. And finally, in chapter 4, full restitution and restoration. Not full in the sense of final, but for her and her context, Naomi's restoration. And so I want us to see this picture of restoration, of what it means for each of us individually as we taste of restoration now and as we look to final restoration in Christ. That's what the whole Christian life is about. It's shalom, being put back together again. Because we're like Humpty Dumpty. We've fallen off the wall as humanity. and Nobody can put us back together again. Ah, but Christ can. And He is healing us. Uh, corporately, individually, in families. And he will have a final healing of every one of his people with us collectively and his creation as a whole. Well, this last section that we uh, come to here in chapter uh, 4, verse uh, 13, is the high point. It's the culmination of this whole little jewel of a book. And in it... uh, it's, it's not just the culmination of this chapter, but this whole book, and it finally resolves the death and emptiness that have afflicted Naomi's life. In the very first uh, verses, 
of Ruth. She loses her husband. She loses her two boys. And she's left with her two daughter-in-laws. One of them stays in uh, Moab at her urging. The other, Ruth, comes with her and is devoted to her and is used to help bring restoration to Naomi. And what's interesting about this book is that when people have say, taken a wrong turn in their interpretation of it, and they want to make it out to be all totally and completely about uh, David and completely about giving him a line and completely about restoring Elimelech, Naomi's uh, husband that died, restoring his line. But actually, it's all about Naomi's suffering and loss and now her restoration. And then there's this surprise ending. And by the way, this glorious story of the restoration of Naomi ended up bigger than anybody could imagine. She became the ancestor of David, the greatest figure in the Old Testament, maybe along with Moses. It just explodes into a meaning and a significance. But both are, are important. Don't, we don't want to take away from the fact that this is a story of restoration for Naomi. And as we look at the structure beginning in verse 13, it becomes a, a bit apparent, uh, more apparent. Because in verse 13, you have what they call a telescoping of time. Because the 70 verses that preceded this, starting way back chapter 1, verse 6, when they start coming back from Moab to chapter 4, verse 12, is probably only a few months, okay? So 70 verses and three or four months. Then in one verse, we cover at least nine months because there's a marriage and a pregnancy and a birth. It may be a year, it may be longer. So in one verse, we cover way more time than we did in 70 verses. Now, the point is that the the narrator's doing this on purpose and he uses these clipped staccato, rapid-fire phrases. When he says, So Boaz Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, she bore a son. Almost as to say, okay, let's get the the facts out of the way. Now, let's get to the significance of that. Let's get to the meaning of that. And so in verses 14 and 15, it spreads out. And as always in this book, it's through speech where meaning and significance is, is gained and where the progress of the drama really moves forward. It's in conversation and discussion and dialogue. And now what's interesting is the women are given center stage. These are the women, if you go back to chapter 1 in verse 19, the two of them, that is Ruth and Naomi, when they're coming back into Bethlehem, It says, when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara or bitter. But for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I've had exceeding difficulties, what she's saying. My my life has been torn to pieces, she's saying. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has returned me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Well, as one man put it, uh, they had to just sit and listen to Naomi and her express her bitterness and the emptiness with which the Lord had returned her. But now it's the women 
calling to mind that scene because that's the only other scene with the women. So this is the contrast to that scene. She returned empty. And now they say, you, and in fact, one of the words that they use here is he has returned life to you. It's the only two times, even though that word's used 15 times, return in this book is a very important word. These are the only two times it's used in this causative sense uh, in the Hebrew. He caused you to return empty. Then the women are saying to, to her, He's caused you to have life. So the narrator is contrasting that, that speech uh, with which, that, that she gave as she came back to Bethlehem expressing her emptiness with this which is expressing her fullness. And so the women say, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, etc., And so the brevity of verse 13 shows that it's not the high point. It's all about God's healing and restoration that's provided by this speech. Uh, I believe it was uh, Block that says, The bright color print uh, developed in the fourth chapter from its gloomy negative in the first chapter. So you had this gloomy negative in the first, and now there's this bright uh, color print that's been developed by God's grace. It's expressing the radical reverse of her her fortune, so that her personal tragedy launched the story and her personal triumph climaxes it. The book could easily be named the story of Naomi. Historically, it's been called the story of Ruth, but we lose so much if we don't understand how much it is about uh, Naomi and her restoration. And so what you have is this narrative and then the women's response, and then you have another narrative in verse 16 and the women's response. Uh, So they have absorbed, in a sense, her cry of emptiness, and now they're announcing the day of her fullness. Um, So to begin with, then, this uh, narration just quickly announces, of course, that this Ruth... And you have to remember, Ruth was barren for 10 years with her former husband, Malon. Barren for 10 years. So if if you're following that, when she gets married to Boaz, there's still the question, will she even bear children? What will happen at this point? And so, for the only the second time that Yahweh is mentioned as doing something, in chapter 1, verse 6, it says that Yahweh had ended the famine and given plenty back in uh, the land of Israel. And so they returned to the area of Bethlehem because God had turned around the famine. And here is its counterpart. Uh, the Lord gave her conception. And we're to call to mind all of the Old Testament incidences, especially with the patriarchs, when their wives were barren and could not uh, have children. And the Lord again and again uh, gave them children. And so this makes us think of there's something important about this child. In every case that that happens, whether later it was Samuel or Samson, uh, in the in judges or the patriarchs themselves in every case and of course finally leading up to John the Baptist and even Christ himself this is a huge matter of God bringing about his salvation and the continuing uh, line that will bring about the Lord Jesus Christ by his power and his power alone and so here we see Yahweh entering in and giving her fruit 
she who had not had a child for 10 years. So God has a specific purpose for this woman. And it just makes you tremble to think she was just in Moab, in a sense, minding her own business, worshiping her idols, when in comes this uh, Israelite family, uh, refugees from a famine. She meets this guy, Malon. She marries him. Ten years later, she's brought back just with this one uh, widow. And look what is unfolding because of it. And so as they respond then to this action, uh, a redeemer, this is the only time a child has ever been called a redeemer. And it means that this child, uh, who they will name Obed, will grow up and take care of her, her, his grandmother. He will care for her in her old age. And so you see, all of this is from the woman's point of view of what's going to happen to Naomi. And they're saying, look what the Lord has done for you. He's given you a redeemer and he will have this renown in Israel. But notice in verse uh, 15, he will be to you a rescuer of life and a nourisher of your old age. A restorer of life. And as I said before, that word restore of life is a return to life uh, as God had given her emptiness or returned her with emptiness before. So um, it says as well, notice in verse 15, that your daughter-in-law who loves you. This Moabite is the only person that is attached to this word love, ahav. So it's one of the greatest statements of admiration for her that she, of all people in Israel, this Moabite, this foreigner, this stranger, it is her love that is underscored in this place. And that's a sign of the admiration that the whole community has for her. It's the way the narrator underscores that she is singled out in her commitment. And the understanding is that her son will carry out that love for Naomi into her old age. You are provided for from now on. The love of Ruth will live on in the, in the love of her son. And you have a permanent redeemer that will take care of you. And, of course, he will inherit the land and manage the land for your benefit and supply you from it. And this most amazing statement that says, seven, she's, she's greater for you than seven sons, more to you than seven sons. Seven sons was like a parable, uh, a kind of a proverb uh, of saying this is the perfect number of sons. The perfect family is to have seven sons. It's the number of wholeness. To say, if you have that complete number of of young men, then you're surely going to be taken care of as uh, a lady of age. Okay, You've got seven sons, the perfect complement. So you'll see sometimes families described as he had a family of seven sons, indicating the fullness and the richness of the family. And they're able to say, Ruth... This is astounding, especially in a story where a son is so sought as, uh, as is Obed, you know, a son that would be born to take care of her. And yet they would say, this daughter is better to you than seven sons. It, it's unheard of to make a statement like that of her. 
And one has written more than anyone else. And this is a bit of hyperbole, perhaps, but this is the feel that people have when they read this story. More than anyone else in the history of Israel, Ruth embodies the fundamental principle of the nation's ethic. You shall love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't it interesting that Israel is called to love strangers as they love themselves But it takes a stranger to come in and exhibit that love, even for those around her. So a tremendous statement that makes us think of of some of the people in the New Testament, uh, Gentiles who believed in Jesus, and Jesus was amazed at their faith when so many in Israel did not believe him. Then you see in verse 16, as he continues the narration, that she took the child and laid him on her map or, or lap, or really the, the better translation perhaps is she took him into her bosom. Um, any grandmother knows what it's like to take that little grandchild and hold it for the first time. Even parents know what that is. It's just awesome. The feel of a child, even to this day, well, I just had it, you know, holding on to uh, Noah. He just about made me weak in the knee the, when he uh, hugged me back there. But... That's what it's talking about here, that she took the child in her bosom and, and she became his, his caretaker. It just means that she was going to participate uh, completely in his care, uh, kind of like a, in the old term nanny, which meant the grandmother, the non, nana. Uh, and so she was going to be the nana for this child and devote her time and attentions and love to him. Um, Some people have thought this might mean in some way that she's a wet nurse, but that's not anything close to what it means. In fact, this term bosom is used of men as well. Uh, The parable in Samuel where it says the the father had a a nursing ewe lamb that he held in his bosom. Or even the word nurse here is used of Mordecai with Esther, her uncle. He was her caretaker. Uh, so it, it just simply indicates that a tender affection that a grandmother would have for her child. And probably when it says the neighborhood gave him a name, it doesn't mean literally that they named him Obed. But when they said, a son is born to you, the understanding there is a caretaker, a provider. And so it's like sometimes when something would occur around a child and people would say, we're going to name him that. That's what we're going to name him. And so their declaration that he is uh, the son that is born to Naomi, usually this kind of birth announcement is given to the father, but now it's given to Naomi. Another underscoring that this child has a special reference to her emptiness and her loss, the death that has occurred in her life. And we already talked about this uh, weeks ago, but in the first verses, in verse 3, when it talks about her two sons uh, remaining after her husband, it uses the normal word for son. But in verse 5, when she loses the sons, it uses the smaller, the, the name for children, to say she lost her children. And the reason, they say, is because right here, it uses that same word and says, the child was put into her bosom. So she lost her children. Speaking of grown boys, the only time it's ever used of grown men, they're called children, to indicate now she's been restored. A child has been placed in her bosom. And so, interestingly here, as several commentators have pointed out, it's very much like the story of Job. As she cried out in the pain of her loss, 
God never explains himself as to why she lost her husband and why she lost her two boys. There's never a a confrontation with God or, look, I was doing this and this and this. It's simply that God continues to show himself faithful. With Job, he revealed himself as the glorious creator. And Job finally says, how can I question you and your wisdom and power and goodness as it's displayed in creation? I repent of ever uh, being against you and, and, and doubting your concern and care for me. Here, it's not so much creation, but God's providential dealings with them. Uh, the kindness of his providence as he has unveiled his, his glory to them in that way. And so it's a call to trust him no matter what, to give yourself up to his gracious will no matter what. And you and I, interestingly, we've, we've really been given a pre-interpretation of every difficult event in our life. The pre-interpretation is this, God has given his son to die for you. And Paul's unmistakable logic in Romans 8.32 is, if he didn't spare his son, he won't spare anything good for you. Which means he's always doing you good. Always. So for us, wonderfully, we may or may not have some providence that constantly shows us that he is faithful to us. Because there are believers who were first imprisoned and stayed in prison and slowly starved and finally died. And you might ask, well, where was the promise? Where was the fullness? Where was the turnaround in their life? And yet all the way, many of them can confess all the way to their dying day, they were full of the glory of Christ. And they grew in His grace and intimacy with Him and gave themselves up gladly to His will and indicated that He was worth more than life itself to them. And so they were able to trust him and give themselves up to his will. Well, there are several applications, and I'm only going to have time for just the one this morning, and we'll talk about the others next week. Um, And it's, it's simply this. As we see this last little phrase in verse 17, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And there's been a little hint at the beginning, if you're reading carefully, and it says something about the Epaphrathites from Bethlehem of Judah, because when uh, David's family's introduced in Samuel, it says they were Epaphrathites of Bethlehem of Judah. So Ruth, which is likely, they think now, written after Samuel, actually, looking back into this time, it's using a phrase that people would say, Mm, that kind of reminds me of David. Could this be about David? You know, that kind of idea. And here it comes out, though. And, and you're made to sit back and think, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me now, here's David, the greatest figure in the Old Testament. He was the great king that was the, it was the pinnacle of Old Testament uh, faith in, in Israel under David. Uh, and, and he became then the, the model, the preview of the Messianic king. I mean, he's just this critically important figure. And you're telling me that first, God created a famine in Bethlehem. They leave to go to Moab. Then in Moab, they marry these girls. Then her husband dies and her boys die. And she urges the girls to stay. And just think if you were watching this from the standpoint of saying, wait a minute, Ruth's got to get back and marry Boaz. You know, (laughs) 
You're thinking, first of all, if somebody tells you there's this girl named Ruth that's going to marry Boaz, you say, well, where is she? She's in Moab right now. Well, how's she going to get over here? Well, watch this. <laughs> Famine. They end up. They meet. And then when Naomi's urging her to return, you're saying, no, Naomi. She's got to come back. Don't tell her to stay in Moab. She's got to marry. Sure enough, she doesn't. And she cries out, nothing's going to tear me away from you because I'm, your people are going to be my people. Your God's going to be my God. Little did anybody know that that confession would not only mean, finally, the birth of David, but David's greater son, the birth of Jesus Christ. In her confession, in her faithfulness, in her submission to the will of God, in God's bringing about, orchestrating her meeting Boaz, all of the events that lead up to this, God was working a a thing that nobody could have imagined. It shows His passion for all of our lives and His passion to bring about His kingdom. And it shows that He truly wants to bring about the salvation of His people because all of these things meant that He would eventually bring His Son for you. You see, in all of this orchestration, His passion for your salvation. And then I would just draw from that this word for you, the certainty of the glory of His purpose in your life. The, the, his purpose goes from one generation to the next, we learn in this passage. They couldn't know what's coming down the road. What could, and, and Ferguson talks about this, what looks haphazard and messy in our lives could be accomplishing a purpose that we can't even imagine. There's a purpose in it all, Morris says, and the purpose is the purpose of God. And so the most seemingly mundane situation for you and me is always a sacred moment, an opportunity to contribute to the unfolding of God's redemptive plan. As all of these moments, there's no voice from heaven. There's no miracle in this book. It's just a little out of the way town. In fact, later Bethlehem has said, you know, how, oh, oh you that's, that's hardly even named. From you is coming a ruler. From this tiny little place, Bethlehem, And it's just a story about people in everyday life being faithful and loving God and giving themselves up to Him no matter what in faithful love. And look what God brings forth from it. And I want to urge you to understand that God is always, always bringing about greater blessing than you can imagine for your life. And not only for your life, but somebody down the road. Somebody to somebody to somebody while you're living and somebody in the next or next generation. God is always working out His purposes in glorious ways that we don't know. And so, the explanation for much that takes place in our lives lies beyond our own lives. It may be hidden to you in much of your life, but He has the lives of others in view with your life. Your life is going to touch so many other people's lives as you're what? Faithful to love. Ferguson talks about this, that... Our lives are, he uses the you know, Scottish word, untidy. I would love to hear him say that. Um, but it's like the tapestry is incomplete. There's still much weaving to do to bring about the loose ends. And it's going to happen in someone else's life in the future. So be encouraged with the messiness and untidiness and difficulty and struggles of your life that in that struggle and your faithfulness and your love... 
God only knows the glory that will bring forth from your life as you prove to be faithful even as Ruth and Boaz and ultimately Naomi was. And I pray, I pray for you that this people will literally influence the world. Is there any reason why it wouldn't happen? That you people would influence the world by your faithful hesed, that's the Hebrew word, faithful, steadfast love. Let us pray. Oh Lord, our only hope is that we have the Lord Jesus Christ in His faithful love to give Himself on the cross for His people. His faithful love that caused Him to sacrifice Himself and to become sin on our behalf. His faithful love to join Himself to us to identify with us and to bear our punishment so that we would not have to bear punishment. His faithful love that went to uh, had no limits, that He became a servant, that He plumbed the depths of humanity and suffering and degradation because of His faithful love. Oh Lord, this faithful love of Ruth, the faithful love of Boaz are simply previews of the great one who is to come, who alone is the one truly that loves. And in his love, we can be restored, as Paul says, no longer to live for ourselves, but to live for him, to become your workmanship in your hand, to become those who are now pouring our love into each other's lives and into others uh, beyond our pale as a church. Lord, we pray that we will see afresh the love of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that we will see you are in the business right now of restoring us completely uh, to the image of Christ and eventually that you will restore us in this whole creation, that we are part of that restoration. And even in our love to other people and to one another, we are instruments in your hands to bring about restoration in this world at least a taste and a preview of that final restoration through the love that we pour out in people's lives. Thank you, Lord, for the dignity of that. And thank you for the ultimate success of it. We have no idea how you may use us in this world. May we simply be faithful and give ourselves away, spending ourselves for Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. My Lord, my life, my light Oh, come with blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away? Then shall my soul with rapture trace The wonders of thy love the fool.